for downloading that B Word podcast. This is your beautiful bipolar host, Becky, and I'm really sorry I haven't posted in a while, guys. In fact, as I'm recording this, I don't know when I'm going to be able to post it because I'm having some trouble with my domain and access to the podcasts, and it's just terrible. <laughs> I've been fighting this for a while now, and I think I think I might be about ready to post again. So hopefully, fingers crossed, everything will end up okay. Let me tell you guys, podcasting is kind of a pain in the butt sometimes. <laughs> Not so much the recording and, and the promotion and all the good stuff, all the parts I like, but the technical aspects of it can be ugh, just not fun. So another reason that I, well, a few other reasons that I haven't been able to record and podcast in a while is that I've been having a lot of stuff come up in my personal life uh, beyond the stress of Christmas and New Year's and all of that. I have, um, my father has been sick and he recently kind of had a, another relapse of sorts. He had to go back into the hospital and ended up needing to get um, two nephrostomy bags, which are basically tubes that come out of your kidneys. And he's been requiring a lot more care, and I've been trying to help my parents out more with, well, you know, the general life things that, especially in the wintertime, you need to do. In the wintertime, in my neck of the woods anyway. Um, like shoveling sidewalks and taking the trash out and all that good stuff. And I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to come off like I'm complaining at all because, because I... I'm not. I don't. I feel like it's just something that I need to do. But it, but it accompanies a stress. You know, it's, it's a stress on me and it's really kind of kicks up my anxiety. Not only because I'm worried about my father, but it's kind of a anxiety of responsibility that I feel like I'm never doing quite enough for them. They are always there, so it's something else that I feel like I should be doing. And that's, well, it's not great for my mood, quite honestly. <laughs> um, and that's kind of led to a snowball of uh, a resurgence of intrusive thought, disturbing kind of intrusive thoughts. I think most of you probably know what I'm talking about. And, you know, that in turn leads to less sleep, which leads to more mood swings and greater irritability, which is just kind of an ongoing circle and where I'm stuck at right now, although I'm pushing through as much as I can. The one topic I wanted to talk to you today, I don't have a guest today, so I'm just going to touch on a few topics that I've wanted to kind of discuss for a while in a little bit more depth than I think I have before. And one of those things is intrusive thoughts, especially strange, um, violent, or upsetting intrusive thoughts, which I guess most of them are. Otherwise, they wouldn't be intrusive, right? They'd be welcome. <laughs> anyway, um, and by intrusive thoughts, I mean, in my experience anyway, 
so some of my experience with intrusive thoughts um, center around um, self-harm or harm coming from outside sources. They can also be intrusive um, in a in, almost in a flashback kind of way to uh, it could be literally anything from some mundane embarrassment 20 years ago to something more you know traumatic so it, it kind of runs the gamut and it I mean it doesn't make sense and I guess they shouldn't expect it to make sense right but yeah there's um in addition to for example, one of my more recurrent uh, thoughts are centered around, I have a recurring thought of, of something like going through my eyeballs, like a like an arrow or pencil or something being shoved into my eyeballs. It's gross <laughs> and somewhat off-putting. And also more general thoughts of like cutting myself or being stabbed in various ways it's like I said it doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I'm talking about intrusive thoughts and I asked a few other people what their experiences were and they seemed um, somewhat similar in some ways I spoke to one person who had recurrent intrusive thoughts of being tortured so I guess that's uh, well, not self-inflicted, kind of similar. And in addition to um, like the physical harm type thoughts, there's also a category of intrusive thoughts that are like thoughts of self-hatred, like uh, a recurrent intrusive thought of everybody hates me, nobody likes me, everybody's talking about me, things like that which I also struggle with quite frequently, frequently. <laughs> and, uh, and they deserve, you know, as much attention as the other more self-harm, the more violent types, I suppose, of uh, intrusive thoughts. Because they can be just as damaging to your psyche because these are not thoughts that are acted on necessarily. You know, it could be you know, a lot of people have these thoughts and, and never act on them and never act on them or act on them seldom. So the self-hatred, I hate my life, I hate everything, intrusive thoughts uh, can be, like I said, just as damaging. I was actually just watching a video and I'll link to it in the show notes that really kind of resonated with me. In this video, um, the, the person who was talking the YouTuber, I don't know what to call him, the guy, said that um, his intrusive thoughts came mostly as forms of flashbacks, like I was talking about from embarrassments, certain traumas, and, you know, sometimes little nothing things, sometimes major things. And he said that he used kind of like mm, more like macabre thoughts, I guess, to drown them out which I'm wondering if maybe some of my self-harm thoughts are kind of reactions to the flashback thoughts because they kind of come in that order and I mean I don't think I'm doing it on purpose maybe like like this guy in the video was but that 
kind of follows the same pattern. And I'm wondering if that is, you know, kind of like an automatic stress response to the intrusive thought, just to kind of get it out of my head. I mean, it's replacing it with something equally bad. So I'm not sure why that that would, um, it does definitely get my mind in a different spot. <laughs> so I'm not exactly sure. I don't have a definitive thought process or answer on that. I just thought it was worth mentioning because a lot of, a lot of times I feel I don't read a lot or hear people talk a lot about the intrusive thoughts. Um, and for me, they can come when I'm low, when I'm high, when I'm, you know, mixed, it's just irritable, especially when I'm mixed and irritable, actually. So it doesn't seem to be connected to any one state, which it seems like it should be connected to like mania, but it's not. There's a couple articles that I found about the issue and they basically suggest that the same thing that my therapist suggests quite honestly. So I guess it's kind of standard that once you identify what the intrusive thoughts are and you've acknowledged them, you just try to end replace it with something more positive. My therapist suggested a bucket of puppies or not a bucket of puppies. <laughs> oh, gross. Um, <laughs> Uh, a, a basket of puppies or just, you know, puppies playing or something like that. And, um, I don't know, that seems so kind of saccharine to me that I just can't, I can't do something like that. It's, it's just too goody, goody sweet, I guess. And I mean, I love puppies. I love dogs. Who doesn't? I mean, a lot of people, but I do. But just that thought of like always thinking puppies and rainbows and flowers just kind of I don't know, it kind of turns me off, I guess. I'm not that kind of person. Um, so maybe, I don't know, maybe if I was that kind of person, I would have a, a better time controlling everything. But I'm not, and I just can't, I can't make myself do it. It's kind of like um, one of the other things that are suggested, especially for people with low self-esteem, like myself, are to look in the mirror and say positive things to yourself, positive affirmations. And I try, I really do, but uh, it just, it, it makes you feel, it makes me feel anyway, like so ridiculously dumb. Just, yeah, not even dumb, like absurd. And so I don't do it that often. <laughs> um, although it probably does work, but... It's just one of those things that I'm just like, oh, really? I have to, like, go all Stuart Smalley on this? Ugh, I don't really want to. I'm fairly certain other people out there can relate to that. <laughs> so, yeah, the intrusive thoughts, I think, um, kind of lead into another topic that I wanted to discuss. And that is what I'm, what I'm putting in quotes. Why are you so jumpy? or having a low startle or high startle response, having an active startle response, um, or being very sensitive to things like that, which I can be at times, definitely, especially 
loud noises really get to me. I used to have, well, I still have a boss that used to come up to my desk, which faced the opposite direction from the door, come up behind me and uh, bang on the door really loud, make a very loud noise. And when I obviously jumped and screamed, which is, I, I can't control that, he would be oh so amused. He would think it was quite funny and he would keep doing it just to get that reaction out of me until I I told him one day, I kind of got angry, and I told him he had to stop doing that before he seriously killed me. And he did stop doing it, although he was kind of jerky with me for a while. And he would also, I mean, my boss is, let's just say, problematic. <laughs> anyway, but those kinds of things really, um, what I'm talking about, restart response, if there's a sudden noise, or a sudden surprise or movement. For example, the other day, um, I came out of the bedroom and I was, I have a set of stairs and I was at the top of the stairs and <clears throat> suddenly my husband jumps out from the bottom of the stairs, kind of jumps out of the room and says, hi. And I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> and that kind of made me like jump and scream a little bit uh, because he wasn't supposed to be there at that time. <laughs> So that's another kind of thing that would kind of trigger my startle response. And I am wondering, going back to how I think the intrusive thoughts lead into that, I'm wondering if maybe having those thoughts in your head on a regular basis, if not constantly, have kind of primed you to uh, be a little bit or maybe a lot more startled or jumpy. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense, right? If you're going through your whole day thinking about getting stabbed in the back of the head, then when somebody comes up behind you and is like, hey, how you doing? Then, I mean, it's going to startle you, right? <laughs> so I think that there might be some sort of link between that startle, resp startle response and intrusive thoughts and also it's probably a lot to do with just general anxiety i think that's probably all and the uh, startup response can also be hypervigilance right which is also a, a symptom of ptsd so i suppose it can you can come by it from a number of different ways but as far as i'm concerned their effect is you know the mm, Two, two different degrees the same, right? Um, I think everything obviously comes in different degrees. And, you know, some people are what they call the highly sensitive person, right? And some people are more to the extreme end of that, and some people are more to the, um, to the low end of that. And I think I'm probably more to the low end of that, if anything. At least in my experience, it's not constant, right? So they can ebb and flow. Sometimes you can be very easily startled and you can have, uh, you can be very jumpy and anxious. And then, you know, I'm moving my hands, you can't see it, but it can move like a wave, um, you know, up and down. So for a while, actually, that really kind of bothered me because, because I would go through a period where very very jumpy or very irritable or, or go through a, a phase of whatever, some kind. And then it would ebb. And 
I would think, oh, I would question myself and be like, oh, was I just making that up? Am I not really, you know, I don't really have bipolar disorder. I'm not really anxious. I was just, I was just being dramatic or something like that. And I think that's just an example of self-stigma, right? You can't imagine I'm alone in that. I've also been wondering if, and I think maybe I've seen this written somewhere before, the the term bipolar disorder shouldn't be expressed better as like a bipolar spectrum disorder, kind of like autism is an autistic spectrum disorder. Because, I mean, it really doesn't, it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? Some people, you know, bipolar type 1, they have frequent psychotic episodes, are very manic most of the time. Um, bipolar type 2, you know, they're going to be more towards the hypomania, uh, depressive end. And then some people are just often mixed and they don't necessarily get to a, a manic state where they're feeling um, expansive and and positive, but just irritable. Some people are constantly in that state or constantly cycling, and some people have two episodes in their life of mania that they end up hospitalized for. So I really think that it's a spectrum, and I think I'm going to start kind of looking for places that describe it as such and, and try to describe it as such myself. Because, like I said, it's not one size fits all. Everybody, everybody's different and everybody copes with it in different ways. So while I think it's great to have community and have other people who are, can relate to maybe certain aspects of it or, or just like the general pain of it, not everybody is going to be, oh yes, I check all of these boxes and I think that we are kind of conditioned to think that, to think that way, to think we've checked this box, this box, this box. Okay, equals bipolar one, equals bipolar two, equals schizoaffective. And it's not so much like that. And I think that creates that self-stigma, like, oh, I can't even be bipolar, right? <laughs> right? Or um, I can't, I'm not really... I can't join this community or I can't seek this sort of support because I'm not as bipolar or I, I don't suffer the same symptoms to the same intensity as these other people do, which is just, you know, as I say it out loud, just it's ridiculous <laughs> because if you're, if you're hurting, if you're having symptoms and you are, you know, in need, then who cares if somebody else quote unquote got it worse than you because I mean it's all relative maybe somebody sort of become more callous and so what you know what kind of wouldn't bother them because they've created have these have this callous nature would really hurt somebody else but anyway it's all relative to the person to their situation and to their lifestyle so let's try to keep that in mind and be more welcoming to everybody and especially especially to ourselves because I think most of that is like a self like I said a self stigma and speaking of community and fitting into you know uh, a community or, or a, 
a group of people who are like-minded or have similar issues. I recently it's come up and um, on Twitter and and on a few other podcasts that there is a difference between having an in real life right support network and an online support network. And yes, of course, there's differences just like on its face. You can tell that in real life, you see the person, you can shake their hand, they can give you a hug. Um, online, it's more thoughts and prayers, you know. Um, but I don't think we should diminish the importance of having or, or the existence of online support communities. Because for a lot of people, that's all they have if they don't. Maybe they can't leave their house or they are agoraphobic or extremely socially anxious, then they're not going to be able to, you know, go out and get the in real life social networking and social um, interaction and community that they might be able to get online. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't just discount that. Some people are, you know, so for some people that's going to be enough. And for some people, you know, it's not. Some people need that physical interaction. Some people need a hug. Some people need to look somebody in the eyes and know that they understand what you're talking about. And that's important too, but it's also harder to get if you think about not only kind of the fear of being stigmatized or um, thought poorly of because of your illness, but you tend not to, you know, tell a lot of people. Because of that, it's difficult to create that support network or that community of like-minded people because, because it's so hard to express that part of yourself to maybe not even strangers, to maybe people you've known for a long time. But you can't express that to them because of the social stigma and all of that stuff. And maybe they're, you know, part of your work and you don't want to come out at work. So it's a lot more difficult, I think, to get that in real life network. Not to say that it shouldn't, you shouldn't try, you know, if you can, because it's valuable. I'm sure, like, it's always going to be valuable to have somebody that, you know, you can call at the height of an emergency or when you're having an episode and say, hey, I can't keep myself safe right now. Can you come over? And that's, of course, having somebody there physically with you is going to be superior to having somebody chatting with you online, but that's not to downplay the effect that uh, online support can have. Maybe they can't physically, you know, make sure that you are safe and are not hurting yourself, but they can definitely make a difference in uh, possibly calling someone to to make sure that you're safe, whether it be like an ambulance or the police or anything or your family member or something like that. And if you're the kind of person who doesn't have a physical network, then perhaps if you're able to create a very strong online network, it would be a good idea to, like you would with, you know, your friends and family or your spouse, create an action plan for when you are um, in an episode 
you know, when things start to go bad. And that might mean once you meet somebody and you feel you can trust them, um, giving them a phone number to somebody maybe who can come check on you or the no phone number of the police station near where you are so they can come check on you. Um, just like you would, you know, with your best friends, with your spouse. So I think that is something that a lot of people don't think of doing. And I think that would really, it's the same kind of thing you would do in real life. And I think that's part of the, the allure, the draw of having, you know, physical person. That's just my two cents on that issue. There's another thing that I wanted to talk about today. It was an, there's an article that I found and it's out of Idaho. Um, it's on the Idaho Statesman webpage and I'm going to link to it in the show notes. And the story details how a woman with bipolar disorder ended up in, well, in jail and facing felonies because she attempted to get uh, treatment during a manic episode. Evidently, this makes me very angry. I can, yeah, it just makes me real mad. Um, evidently, in Idaho, there is legislation that is meant to protect healthcare workers, and it essentially makes any sort of assault or battery against a healthcare worker, a felony. Uh, originally, it looks like they tried to make an exemption for mental illness, but the exemption did not pass, and so there are no exemptions for anybody in this law. If you, you know, you hit a nurse, you go to prison for felony. Well, it appears that uh, Amy Johnson, is her name, was been bipolar for, um, known she was bipolar for 13 years um, after being diagnosed when she was 20. Um, but evidently, she found that she couldn't qualify for Medicaid and couldn't afford any of her medications. So her plan to stay healthy was to, as she put it, live very carefully. Eat right, exercise, sleep, stress management, and that kind of thing. And she, you know, was largely successful. But evidently, her work got to be busier and she started losing sleep and that threw her into a manic episode. So uh, according to her plan, uh, her boyfriend took her to the hospital. It looks like the hospital she was taken to is listed as an inpatient facility. So I'm assuming then it's a mental health facility. Um, and her boyfriend wasn't allowed to stay with her. So he went home and then when he came back the next day to see her, she was gone. She had been taken to jail uh, because she had been in a manic state, combative, and and looked, grabbed an employee's clothing and, and ripped her clothing. And so the staff wanted to press charges. I have conflicting feelings about that, but I'll get to that in a minute. So um, she was put in handcuffs, taken to jail, and... I can only imagine what kind of what kind of hell that you'd go through um, getting being manic, being put in jail and not 
really understanding why. Because, I mean, you can't know in that state. You probably don't even remember what you've done or why it was bad. On one hand, I understand, you know, healthcare professionals have to be safe. I mean, they can't, their job is inherently more dangerous than some others, but that doesn't mean that they should be punching bags either. But when you're facing somebody with a mental illness that is acting out of accordance with their rational mind, can you hold that person accountable for frightening or for getting physical with the staff? In my mind, the issue really comes back to the fact that she couldn't afford her medication. Had she been able to afford her medication, she would have been fine. Um, she wouldn't have, more, most likely, she wouldn't have had that manic episode. She wouldn't have had to go to the hospital. She wouldn't have then uh, assaulted a nurse or an aide or whoever it was. Oh, that's because she had no insurance. Uh, how can you hold somebody accountable for the effects of their illness when they do not have the capability to control their illness as necessary because they can't afford it because of money? I don't understand. It makes me very upset that somebody has to go through this and upset that a woman had to essentially wake up after a manic episode in prison or in jail and not know why. Yeah, so I have to go to that birthday party in like half an hour. It's a couple hours away. Cross state lines. Bull. And a lot of people there that I don't know. Which has really got my social anxiety kicking up. Um, I've already kind of maneuvered it to where I don't have to, where I don't have to be there for quite as long. I'm going to, you know, skip the meal beforehand. I'm just going to come over to hang out and with presents and maybe have a piece of cake or something, you know, let my best friend know that I still, you know, care about her because a lot of the time when she invites me to things with people I don't know, I, I don't feel I can go or I feel a real sense of dread about going. And so I think, you know, she and probably rightly gets kind of either offended or saddened by that because, you know, your best friend isn't coming to all your stuff. And that's kind of hurtful. So making a concerted effort to ignore my own insecurities and stuff and go and support my best friend on her birthday. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I think I'm going to cut that off here. And thanks, everybody, for for listening. You can reach me at that B word at stonefruitmedia.net or on Twitter at thatbword one You can find me on Facebook at thatbwordpod, and on Pinterest at thatbwordpodcast. And you can find all of my previous episodes at thatbword.stonefruitmedia.net, which I have finally gotten fixed. Woohoo! Also, please rate, review, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I really appreciate it, and it helps other people find the podcast. Um, if you would like to, there's also a donate link on the on the website. All right. Thanks so much guys. And, um, until next time. Bye.